Hello, everyone. Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the eighth episode of the RIT Podcast. We're already a few days into the 44th election campaign, and I'm joined today by my guest, the CBC's Aaron Wary. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Eric Grenier. Uh, people might not know this, but uh, you and I, we sat together uh, in the Bureau in Ottawa for years and years, and uh, this is the first time I think I've actually literally chatted to you in... <laughs> Like a year. You're and gonna a half. make me. You're gonna make me emotional, Eric. We're gonna. This is gonna get very misty-eyed in here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure people would listen to us trading arcane uh, <laughs> political trivia. Uh, that's sort of what this podcast is. But anyway, um, we should get started. Uh, what's your Nova Scotia hot take? Oh man, I have so many hot takes. Uh, my hot take is that no one has any idea what that election means. I mean, I guess it proves that incumbent governments can be defeated. Uh, I guess it. Though we should have. We probably should have known that by now. Uh, I guess it proves that you can't just point to pandemic management and and uh, expect to be reelected. But I like look. Every election has its own dynamics. I don't, I don't, I don't look at that election and go, ah, well, as Nova Scotia goes, so goes the nation. Uh, it, it, who knows? And 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 there's still you know what five weeks, four and a half weeks left in the federal election, where you know all sorts of things are going to happen and and to change up the dynamic federally. Do you think that? Trudeau has to say or do anything because of this? Does he have to now spend some more time in Nova Scotia? Does he have to, does he take it as like a, a sign that maybe, because Rankin's campaign was kind of flat, it's kind of, uh, you know, he's not a very high energy person. Does he need to kind of take this as a boy? I really need to have some urgency in what I, what my message is. Otherwise people will just look around at what the other options are. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, it's, it is probably a bit of a, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say a wake-up call, but a, uh, at least a reminder to the federal liberals uh, that nothing's going to be handed to them. Uh, now, I'm not saying that they, they went into this campaign thinking that, but if you ever needed a sort of uh, a kick in the butt this morning, if you're a liberal, to realize that, you know, you have to campaign hard and you have to, you have, to have a message that's going to resonate you know, that's, it's, it should be a handy reminder, at least. And, and I guess for Aaron O'Toole, it's, you know, he starts the day with some good news, at least. Uh, he's not dealing with mandatory vaccination questions or anything awkward like that. He can just kind of bask in the glory of, of Tim Houston. <laughs> yeah, although, like, and again, look, I, I, here's my credentials as a Nova Scotia political analyst. I was in, I spent a few days in Halifax two summers ago. Uh, so there's the extent of my experience. I, like I don't I, I can't comment on and on all the dynamics of that campaign. My anecdotal sense from from listening to people last night was that the PC campaign in Nova Scotia was, didn't have a lot in common with the federal conservative campaign, and uh, there were some pretty big distinctions between the two. So I don't know that you know uh, Aaron O'Toole can can uh, throw his arm around the the pre, the premier designate and. Uh, you know, claim he's one and the same. But yeah, by all means, it, uh, a PC victory is better than a liberal victory if you're a federal conservative. It, it was interesting because today when O'Toole it was in Quebec City, uh, he was talking about how he made, he apparently said, you know, we're different parties, uh, but, you know, it's great to see uh, this uh, thirst for change. But then he was in Quebec and then I, he was also asked, well, what about the Conservative Party of Quebec? which is a much more further to the right. It's much more of a, almost an anti-lockdown kind of party in Quebec. And there he had to be like, no, 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 no. We're very different parties. Um, so it is kind of funny how, you know, it, these distinctions are useful until they're not, right? Yeah. Um, like it does feel like 
you know, like I, sometimes I, I tune into like United Kingdom elections and there like every level of, of election is read through the prism of the main parties. And here, it, it, like you just can't, it's not, there aren't one-to-one comparisons and, and voters who vote, uh, you know, in Ontario, for instance, voters who, who voted for Doug Ford may turn around and vote for Justin Trudeau. I just don't, uh, I mean, I don't need to tell you these things, obviously, but like, yeah, I, I just don't know that how I always struggle with how applicable provincial elections ever are to federal elections. Yeah, it's probably confusing to British or American observers if we would say, well, the PCs, the Conservatives won in Ontario. So that's good news for the Liberals. They're going to now <laughs> win. And it, it is kind of bizarre. So, yeah, I guess we'll uh, we'll see what happens uh, out of this. And I'm curious to see what role Tim Houston is going to play. Is he just going to stay out of it if he's you know especially if he's assuming that justin trudeau will probably be the prime minister after this maybe he doesn't want to put his neck out for aaron o'toole um so anyway something to watch there we're a few days into this campaign everybody's given their takes on how the launches went and all this uh but just in general let's let's kind of go through the parties how things seem to be going and what are the big questions for this in this campaign not just for the next few weeks but you know what it really means in in the big picture for the for each of the parties uh, you know, the Liberals called this election. There was going to be a lot of focus on how they framed the, call, the, the need for this election. Uh, and we've already seen Justin Trudeau going around across the country today. He's in Vancouver. He pretty much got himself as far away as he could from Nova Scotia. Um, what's your sense of, of the Liberal campaign so far? I, I mean, I thought what he did on the first day was interesting in terms of uh, directly taking on the question of why why have an election, you know, to turn around and say, well, why wouldn't we have an election? This is a perfect time. There's all sorts of issues that we need to discuss. It's an important moment. This is exactly the kind of moment we uh, should have an election. Uh, as a rhetorical gambit, I thought that was very interesting. Uh, I don't know that it has necessarily crystallized right off the bat for them. Uh, you know, they've had, I, Afghanistan has probably complicated uh, the campaign to a certain degree for them because, you know, obviously they're the, they're the incumbent government, so they have to deal with those uh, questions. And it hasn't been exactly a smooth operation getting out of Afghanistan. So, uh, it, you know, they're on the defensive to a certain extent. It, it, it's hard. I, I find, I mean, overall, it's hard to get a, a total read on this campaign as yet. It doesn't, it's still, it doesn't feel like a, a normal campaign probably because of the pandemic restrictions. Uh, you know, we aren't seeing the big rallies, uh, at least not yet. We aren't, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite seem as energetic. And that doesn't, that may complicate things for, for, for Justin Trudeau because he sort of thrives on being an energetic campaigner. Um, but I think they're, you know, I don't think they have quite, uh, they have quite landed on, uh, they've quite sort of, uh, uh, landed some punches yet on, on the big stuff. Uh, you know, there's been a dust up over vaccine mandates, which got, which has been muddled, I think, by some of the details and maybe isn't quite as, as big a contrast as the liberals were hoping it would be. But, uh, you know, I don't know that they have, they've quite figured out sort of how to frame uh, the ballot question or what they want the ballot question to be as clearly and definitively as they would like. Now that may change going forward. Look, the conservatives may have done the liberals a big favor by not, uh, by not committing to continue the childcare program. That may end up being a pretty significant point of difference, but it doesn't feel like the campaign has quite uh, found its footing, I guess. In a dated reference that 
you know, makes sense to us. But I think I've heard it applied to other elections that this is a Seinfeld election, uh, <laughs> which is to say an election about nothing. Um, if anybody remembers that show, um, <laughs> you know, it does. It does. I remember like it does in that to that extent remind me sort of of 2008, where the reason for the election uh, was more or less that Stephen Harper wanted to have an election. Uh, and it hasn't yet found its footing. Uh, that one sort of came into focus because you know the global economic system uh, melted down right, in the middle thing, of it. Yeah. But but this one hasn't yet found that yet. Yeah, and you know when you think about even the last campaign, the first couple of days were all about um, individual conservative candidates and the skeletons in their closets, and that kind of blew up pretty quick uh, with blackface, and uh, the campaign completely shifted, and it wasn't any more about those kinds of things. It really wasn't what the campaign seemed like it was going to be at the beginning. It, you know, it, that campaign meandered into whether uh, you know Andrew Shear had an insurance broker's designation. Um, you know, right, it, right. it. I think the start of the campaign. You know, the Liberals could have had a much more of a sharper, punchier kind of framing of why this has to happen, and if you know, it's important not just to have an election, but to reelect us. Um, but yeah, by the end of this campaign, things might kind of formulate into something but if it doesn't you know that i feel like that is a a bit of a problem for the liberals because if things are still kind of this mushy campaign of well you know it's it's a big moment let's let's all weigh in you know that might be enough for the liberals to win because the conservatives are weaker aaron o'toole is unpopular but does that get them to the 36 37 38 percent mark they need to be at for majority government uh you know unless there's a driving urgency for a lot of people I feel like they're risking coming up short here. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it, like that election, the last election, they hit Andrew Scheer pretty early on questions about him, on questions about the party he was leading and the people in his party. Uh, and there were, they, 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 got, they were able to set it up as there are stakes here, right? Like, you know, uh, everything we've worked for for the last four years could be gone you know, we could go back to the days of Stephen Harper, et cetera, et cetera. And they haven't, I, like, I've actually been surprised that we haven't had the usual uh, ceremonial dropping of opposition research on everybody's bad candidates. Right. I don't know. I don't know whether everybody's waiting uh, for September to begin uh, to do that or, or, or what, but it, yeah, there hasn't yet been that kind of sharp distinction of like, here's who we are. Here's who the other guy is. Uh, and, and now, and, and here's why this election matters. Yeah, there hasn't really actually been much of a focus on Aaron O'Toole from Justin Trudeau at all. Um, and yeah, there hasn't really been, not that the Liberals did that with Andrew Scheer in the same way that the Conservatives did with Justin Trudeau and Michael Ignatieff and Stephen Dion, of framing him before you know he was able to frame himself. But you know, Aaron O'Toole remains, I think, a, an empty vessel for a lot of people. They don't really know much about him. And it doesn't feel like the Liberals are taking a lot of efforts to try to fill that empty vessel all that much. Yeah, it does. I wonder to a certain extent how much of how the liberals, whether the liberals are approaching this election differently because they're in the lead and whether Mm -hmm. that changes their mindset. You know, last time they went in and it was, if I recall correctly, they were trailing to initially or at least pretty close to tied. And that gave them, I wonder if that changed the way they approach the campaign. Whereas now when they've got a lead, they don't, they don't necessarily they are, they are maybe even less sure how to play that hand or whether to be as aggressive as they were in the last campaign. Uh, for the Conservatives, it feels like it's been a weird launch for them. You know, there was that that ad on Twitter 
that <laughs> apparently had to get pulled down for copyright issues. Um, it's always something. Uh, there was that. There was the fact that Aaron O'Toole was in his the Westin Hotel studio that they set up for the first two days of the campaign. The platform, which was a very long document and had that cover photo, which I know most people don't care about, but it is just a weird thing to allow people to fixate on. Mm-hmm. Um, he seemed now he's out traveling again, and you know the campaign seems to be moving in a in a normal way, but. It, it seemed like a weird couple first days to kick off a campaign for a leader that is not very well known. Yeah, it didn't. It doesn't feel like they uh, are are setting the world on fire. I mean, I guess if you wanted to look o- look at it optimistically, you'd say they also haven't fallen apart. Like he he was pretty. If you look at his personal numbers and you look at the party uh, numbers going into this election and sort of the, some of the internal grumbling that was making it into media reports, like I think it. You, one could have imagined this going even worse uh, or particularly badly uh, for Aaron O'Toole right out, of the, right out of the gates. So to that extent, maybe it's been a, an okay launch, uh, like a, a decent start to things that they can, they can build on. Maybe they've sort of at least steadied the ship. One thing that struck me about the platform is I have a hard time, I would have a hard time telling any, like answering the question of what is their signature promise? Right. Like what is the big thing they want to do? What is the big promise that they want uh, front of front of mind for voters? Is it just that they aren't Justin Trudeau? Like, uh, is is that sort of it? Because it doesn't seem like there's a big there's a big idea, and not even necessarily like a big you know transformative innovative idea. But there's no sort of like uh, signature. Yeah, like there just isn't a signature promise, and I don't know that anything they've rolled out so far or highlighted you know, like a GST holiday for December. I, like, I don't know that that's, I, I have a hard time imagining that's going to swing an election. And so to that extent, I just don't know what the sort of, uh, what their big offer is to Canadians, other than if you don't, if you don't really like Justin Trudeau and you don't feel comfortable about what he wants to do, uh, you know, we're here for you. We're the alternative. Like, I just don't know what the positive case is. Is that, any different than what they're offering in 2019? It's hard to remember what Andrew Shear's key policy was. The, that campaign was largely that, uh, you know, this guy's no good and we'll do it better. Uh, mm-hmm. So we should replace him. And yeah, no, that's true. Like Shear's offer was almost even less, right? It was sort of like, hey, I know you didn't like Stephen Harper. Don't worry, I'm nicer than him. Uh, so let's just get back to what we were doing in 2015. And O'Toole has made moves to sort of shore up weaknesses, right? Like on the environment and, you know, he's offering things on, uh, on accountability and, and there's lots of uh, little other little policies scattered throughout the, the platform. Uh, but there's not a, again, there's not a sort of like, hey, here's the big thing we're going to do that's going to, that really differentiates us from the liberals. So it's moved, like it's, they have, they have progressed from where they were in 2019, but it, it just, I wonder what the, they, I wonder if they've progressed enough that they, they, they have a big thing that they're going to promise to do, you know, that there's no big tax cut. There's no big program. You know, sweeping yeah. program or, or thing that people can, that I know I, that I think people can necessarily latch onto. And that's, uh, I wonder whether that is going to kind of limit, put a ceiling on how far they can go. In, in a way, like it does make me think that, this is not that different from 2019 in, tw- uh, in, a, in a sense of 
neither the liberals or the conservatives, uh, you could, I guess the liberals are talking a bit more about what the future is going to be, but it's more or less just a continuation of the stuff that they're putting into place now. Um, but yeah, there's not a huge degree of urgency being uh, kind of pushed by either side. And last time in 2019, the polls didn't really move all that much. Relatively, the liberals and the conservatives always stuck in that close race. And I wonder if neither of them offers something that is feeling very urgent, if their numbers are just going to remain flat throughout the campaign and it just matters what happens with the other parties. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, that seems like a distinct possibility to me. Like I, you know, I was in thinking about previous election campaigns, like there is, you know, 2008 where the polls moved, but barely there's 2011 where the liberals and the conservatives spent three weeks sort of just at status quo, nobody budging. And then, uh, you know, all hell broke loose and the NDP was suddenly the official opposition and the conservatives had a majority. Uh, So yeah, like part of me wonders whether we're going to have kind of just a, a slight adjustment on the parliament we we had uh, a couple of weeks ago. And and part of me wonders whether something big breaks late. Yeah. Well, if if Trudeau ends up with only a couple extra seats, I guess he has to resign. Um, <laughs> I think that's how it works. Uh, yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> all right. Well, how about the NDP? They seem to have a bit more going for them at this early stage. Uh, Singh is still very popular. Uh, he is polling sometimes ahead of Aaron O'Toole on the best prime minister. And uh, the NDP, the last couple of polls, there's a poll out by Abacus today, had him up to 22%. Is this a, you know, a good campaign for the NDP? Or is this going to be a campaign where they can actually have a, a, a real breakthrough? I think that's the question. I guess I wonder what, I guess it depends on what you're imagining a real breakthrough to be. Like the campaign they're running to me when you hear uh, Jagmeet Singh talk, it's all about, you know, we need more new Democrats. It's not, uh, at least from what I've heard so far, it's not, we need an NDP government in Ottawa. It's, uh, you just need to elect more new Democrats. And that's, I mean, I think that's a very reasonable uh, starting point uh, to say, um, you know, look, we're in the 20s now. It would be, it would be great if, if we could double our seat count. Uh, but I, I wonder at what point, I wonder if there is an imaginary ceiling out there where the public likes the idea of there being more new Democrats or people who aren't, people on the left who aren't happy with the Trudeau government uh, like the idea of more new Democrats or, or, you know, are turning to new Democrats almost as a protest vote. Uh, but I wonder at what point people would go, well, we're not totally sure about giving you too, that much power let's pull things back. Like, let's, let's maybe rein you back in a bit. Uh, you know, Jack Layton, I think going back to 2008, campaigned on the explicit statement that he wanted to be prime minister. And he'd also been around for a while by then, by 2011, when, they, when the NDP last had its big breakthrough. And I don't know that Singh has uh, that going, those things going for him. And I, so I wonder whether, you know, yeah, he's, he's got a campaign pitch to get to 40 or 50 seats. And I'm sure the NDP would be thrilled with that, but I, I don't know if he's got a campaign pitch to get from uh, 40 or 50 seats to uh, you know, 120 seats. It's uh, interesting because in Nova Scotia, the NDP there ran a campaign that I think would be very familiar to the federal New Democrats. It was much more of a progressive campaign, much more of a 
um, you know, traditional further left kind of campaign, not the centrist kind of campaign that the NDP uh, might have run in 2015 or the Nova Scotia uh, NDP might have been like under Daryl Dexter. And the NDP did okay, kept up its urban vote, but didn't really make that breakthrough. It still was a liberal conservative fight. So it does make me wonder not to extrapolate from, uh, you know, a province of less than a million people, but is the NDP in a position, is the way that they're positioning themselves on issues enough to get them to be a contender for government rather than just being, uh, you know, the party that, you know, progressives, young people support, uh, people in urban centers, and like you said, gets them maybe to that 40, 50 seat mark, which would be with the exception of, of 2011, you know, a historic result for them. Yeah, like if you listen to them, they're almost, the implicit message they give now is still sort of like, hey, we're there to make sure the liberals do the right thing. And like, I think that's uh, an entirely, you know, reasonable argument for them to make in the position they're in. I just don't know how far it takes you, uh, you know, uh, and I don't know when it comes right down to it, you know, as, as has happened every election for the last, you know, several decades, uh, voters on the left are going to have to, are going to be confronted with messages primarily from the liberals that say, yeah, you, you could vote for the NDP, but if too many of you vote for the NDP, you could end up with a conservative government. So you should probably just vote for us. Uh, and I just don't know how, how, how things hold up in that situation. Yeah, at this stage, it might be more of a strategy that is more aimed at making strategic voters feel comfortable sticking with the NDP, but not necessarily swing voters, you know, like people who would traditionally vote for the liberals. Um, they might not be reaching that level just yet. Um, and I mean, it is a reasonable strategy. If the NDP ends up out of this with uh, 40 seats, um, you know, Singh will be one of the more successful NDP leaders in, in the party's history. Uh, and if you take 2011 out of the equation, that has always been where the NDP has been, right? So within like the historical perspective of the NDP, it makes a lot of sense. If they're still thinking about the 2011 election and what 2015 could have been, uh, it doesn't seem like it's in the same kind of realm. No. And, and in 2015, like, you know, I, I, as we're talking about this, part of me is thinking, you know, you know, Tom Mulcair maybe got a bit of a bad rap in that his position in 2015 was so different, right? He, he, the party was in second place. It had won all those seats. It now needed to figure out how to make the jump into first place. And that's a, that's a much different proposition than what Jagmeet Singh is doing right now, which is trying to get the party from 20 seats to 40 seats. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's the NDP now is arguably further to the left uh, than it was in 2015, but it's easier to be further to the left now. Right. Yeah. And also, I mean, Tom Mulcair was trying to uh, win 60 seats in Quebec. And from everything that we've heard from the New Democrats, they're hoping that if things go well, they could win three. Um, you're not forming yeah. a government with three seats in Quebec, right? Um, no. Unless you're Stephen Harper. But <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that's, uh, that'll be, we'll see. We'll see if the NDP is going to kind of transform itself into uh, a more ambitious campaign that is trying to form government or um, I mean, we'll see. He had a good debate, English language debate last time. Could be another opportunity for him. Um, one opportunity could be what's happening with the Greens. They seem to have put aside some of their issues. Uh, apparently, the headquarters, uh, I was reading an article, has decided that maybe this is not a great idea. And so they're cooperating a little bit with their own leader. 
which seems like that's positive. But she, it sounds like Annamie Paul is going to spend, if not the entire campaign, most of the campaign in her riding, um, which almost makes this feel like an independent campaign with some, you know, green hangers on in, in the rest of the country. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, uh, yeah. They may have they may <laughs> they may have now uh, uh, reached the bare minimum level of functionality uh, to run a campaign uh, and get through an election. Uh, but it's it, it you have to wonder what kind of infrastructure there is across the across the country and like what kind of like organization there is to to run a campaign outside of Toronto Centre and the two ridings in British Columbia. And you just it's it, instead of, you know, I remember last in the last election, right? The, the first week we were all like, well, maybe the, maybe the Greens could get official party status. Maybe they could even flip ahead of the NDP. Uh, we were quickly disabused of those notions. But uh, now it feels like uh, the only question is, can, can Annemi Paul somehow win Toronto Centre? Because if she doesn't win Toronto Centre, like what are the odds that she's still going to be Green leader? Uh, and, and, you know, that's a, that's a high stakes bet and, and B it's sort of a, you know, it sort of speaks to the sort of diminished expectations for that party at this point. Yeah. I don't think there's much else to say about the greens. Uh, we've talked a lot about them, uh, over the last couple of months and, uh, yeah, I think this will be a tough campaign for them, but you know, if she, she'll be in the debates, that's always a chance. And, uh, That'll give her an opportunity. Um, we should talk about the block uh, as well. I haven't been able to see too much of, of uh, their launches so far, but just in general, you know, the block is still a, a big factor. Uh, the, the the latest polls are still suggesting the block is somewhere around that thirty percent mark. Still taking a lot of seats off the table, and you know, I feel like there's two ways things go here for the block. One is that. Uh, they kind of go under the radar. Some Quebecers might still wonder, you know, um, is this really pertinent? Do we really want to continue to be on the opposition benches? And the bloc just kind of sticks around somewhere in the high 20s and, you know, wins 25, 30 seats, and that's it. Uh, but they're starting off from a good position. The last campaign, they started off well below 20% in Quebec. Um, and Yves-Francois Blanchet had a very strong French language debate. He was by far the seen as the winner of that one. You know, there is that opportunity that the block not catches fire, but does enough that they get up to the point where they can win 40 seats and suddenly a liberal majority government just cannot happen because yeah. the, the liberals cannot afford not to make gains in Quebec. Yeah, it does. So the block, my, my read on the block is always that they feel like when they're in parliament, they always feel like sort of the troublemakers in the place. And in elections, they sort of feel like the spoilers. And I, I wonder, you, well, you would know this better than I would, like what, what the Liberals need to drive that block vote down to uh, to get a majority because, the, I, you know, we can talk about Ontario and, and, you know, where the Liberals might pick up seats in the West, but it does feel like uh, if they can't, as you say, if they can't beat, if they can't make substantial gains in Quebec, getting to a majority gets uh, nearly impossible. So like where like what do you think the block need like what do you think the block needs to be down at for the liberals to win a majority? Uh, like right now they're somewhere around twenty seven or twenty eight percent, and uh, the liberals are just kind of almost there. So the block would probably need to be down a couple more points, particularly if you know the liberals are not doing as well in BC and Ontario. Um, there's been a couple of polls that have suggested maybe the those those provinces aren't going as well as they might have been before. At that point, you need the block to start being kind of in the mid to low 20s and uh, the block hasn't really pulled very often that low at least 
across the poles. Sometimes there's some poles that put them that low, but uh, I think that's the challenge. I think that the block does have a pretty, pretty solid bedrock in part because I think a lot of Quebecers are associating the block in a way with the, the CAQ, which is very popular. Um, and that's, I think, the challenge. And I think it's interesting the way that the bloc forces the other parties to, to act, right? The liberals mm. can't, the liberals need to have a Quebec strategy. They need to win seats in Quebec. The conservatives, uh, Aaron O'Toole ha, seems to want to do well in Quebec and has staked some of his, his leadership on, on doing that. Um, but the stakes are maybe lower. And for Jagmeet Singh, going into the last campaign, you know, the, the NDP had still about 14 or 15 seats in, in Quebec at dissolution. So he had to at least put in an effort, at least show that he was trying to hold on to these seats. Now, you know, he's trying to appeal to, uh, you know, urban progressives in downtown Montreal that vote for left wing Quebec City there. His stakes have changed entirely. Um, so now it's, it's really just about that Trudeau Blanchette fight, I think, because for O'Toole, he's just trying to retain what he had. Sheer had these notions that the party could win 20 seats in Quebec. I don't right. think anybody in the Conservative Party now is thinking that they can get over 12. You know, um, it does it does shift the dynamic a little bit. And how much do you do you think that Legault and Trudeau making nice as much as they have over the last few months changes anything? I think it does, because in the last campaign, Legault was kind of going after Trudeau on uh, I think it was the language law or, or French immig uh, immigration into Quebec, I think. Right. And he wasn't being explicit about it, but he was he was he was intervening. Whereas this time, in a way, Trudeau has a little bit of a stamp of approval that, you know, the federal liberal government is is friendly to our government and is willing to give us things. And I think that helps a lot. I think it gives a lot of uh, permission to a lot of nationalist Quebecers to say, you know, well, there is the bloc, uh, the liberals are offering things. And then there's these other parties that don't represent, you know, what we what we want. So. I think it does make a big, uh, a big difference. And if Legault was not friendly with Trudeau, uh, it's hard to imagine the liberals would be leading in Quebec like they are. Right. So that's another, we'll see, I, you know, Legault seems like he's going to stay out of this one. And apparently Ford is going to stay out of this one. <laughs> Everybody's going to stay out. <laughs> I think they're all going to try to stay out of it and then we'll see how they get brought into it. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I don't know that, uh, I, you know, if, 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 uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals need a conservative to fight, and and things are going badly for Ford in some way. I don't know necessarily that they wouldn't, they absolutely wouldn't bring him into this. But we'll also see how it plays out. Like I, part of uh, part of what I'm interested to see over the next few days is now that the Conservatives have made their intentions clear on childcare, uh, how many premiers uh, get into this now and say, wait a minute, actually we would like some money for childcare. Yeah, that's yeah, that's uh, you know, giving it directly to voters uh, might be good for voters, but uh, taking it out of the uh, uh, provincial coffers, premiers might not like that very much. And now, who who are the holdouts still? It's just Kenny. The two holdouts. The, 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 the last two remaining holdouts are Ontario and Alberta, but both of those provinces have indicated an interest in moving forward if they can sort of agree to terms. So uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I. It, a lot depends on on each government's sort of own uh, situation. But uh, if I was a government and uh, someone was offering me a pile of money that would allow me to offer childcare to my voters in the next election, it might be hard to pass that money up.
Yeah. Um, we'll close on this just to uh, just to tie it off. Are you giving any thought to uh, People's Party, Maverick Party? Are they going to have any effect here? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, maybe in the at the margins, uh, you know, yeah. maybe they eat into maybe they eat into the conservative vote in Alberta and Saskatchewan, and that you know drives down the sort of overall national number for the conservatives. But like, I don't. I you, again, you would know this better than me, but I don't see anywhere where they're going to you know, split the vote to such a degree that it's going to matter. No, no. We'll see if Max and Bernie is going to be in the debate. He needs to clear 4% in the polls to get into it. And he could, like, it depends on, you know, whether you're squinting or not, uh, (laughs) whether he gets the 4%. So he could be there. And if he is there, he does seem to have gotten, gone a little bit further to the right than he was last time. So he could be a real troublemaker in a debate. So we'll see if that'll have an impact. But yeah, I, I think that, we're already starting to see, I think, that some of that support might have been parked and might be kind of drifting back to the conservatives as the campaign actually gets started. So, kind yeah, of I think it's almost more of a like a, a, a narrative or optics thing, right? Like if if the Maverick votes and the and the People's Party votes drifted back to the conservatives and their national number came up, you know, it would it would get it would lead people to read the election results maybe or read the polling differently and maybe that changes the narrative but like on actual on the ground results i don't i don't see a huge factor all right well it's the uh, still the height of the summer and it does feel at least to uh, those of us who are stuck in our homes uh, still uh, not out on the campaign trail uh, like it is a, a flat campaign so far and has not really resonating uh, maybe that's just us maybe <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we need to get out there more. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, we'll see if this campaign starts to heat up. And, you know, traditionally, people say after Labor Day, people start paying attention. And they, they better because then they're going to have to start voting. Right. Um, yes. So, yeah, I don't know. All campaigns have flat periods and, and moments when things aren't uh, terribly exciting. But rarely do you get through a full five weeks without something interesting happening. OK. Yeah. Well, we'll have plenty to talk about over the next five weeks. So uh, thanks a lot, Aaron. I know you're very busy. And uh, I appreciate you taking some time for me. Anytime, Eric. All right, let's get to the polls this week. Uh, Now, because of the huge number of polls that will be coming out during the campaign, I'm not going to be doing individual uh, rundowns of the polls like I've done in the past. But I'd like to make an overview of where things are every week. Uh, I wrote about this on the website website. and, uh, you know, let's let's go through some of the numbers uh, over the last uh, week or so where the polls are. The Liberals are starting to show a little bit of softening in their numbers, I have to say. Uh, the numbers that we've seen coming out of the polls the last few days have had the Liberals usually at the 33, 34, 35% mark. And most of the pollsters, or at least a, a good deal of them, are showing the Liberals on the negative side, going down a little bit. Not dramatically, although Abacus did show a four-point drop for the Liberals in their poll released on Wednesday. Uh, but generally, you're seeing that the Liberal numbers are coming down a little bit. So I don't think that's a good place for them to start the campaign, that their numbers are starting to get uh, softer, that a majority government is getting harder for them to win, not easier uh, it doesn't suggest that the kickoff to this campaign is going particularly well for the Liberals. We might be seeing that this is a bit of a reaction to the early call. Abacus data, its poll numbers did show that Justin Trudeau's own personal unfavorability ratings have jumped a little bit just in the last week or so. So it does stand to reason that the Liberals are taking a little bit of a hit for making that call. 
in terms of the regional numbers, you know, the Ontario ones and some of the polls are looking a little bit weaker. In BC, looking a little bit weaker. Quebec, the numbers are looking pretty good for the Liberals. So Quebec could still be a big part of their plan to get that majority government. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, the Liberals are still leading. They're ahead by three to five points in all of the polls that have been out uh, in the last couple of days, except for that forum poll that was uh, a little bit of a weird one. So, you know, the Liberals are still in a good place to win the most seats, that's for sure. But their majority government doesn't look nearly as as much of a possibility as it did uh, going into the campaign. The Conservatives, their numbers are getting a little bit better. A bit of a dead cat bounce, though, when you think about it, because they're still only at 30%, 28, 29, 31. Those aren't very good numbers for the Conservatives. They're certainly better than the mid-20s we saw in some polls in the last couple of months. Uh, and their numbers do seem to be getting inching upwards a little bit, one point here, two points there. Uh, so that's better for the Conservatives. But if it is a regression to the mean that they usually start a campaign at 30%, the question is whether we're going to start seeing them get up to 32, 33 uh, their numbers in Western Canada have been improving, which is getting them up in the national vote, but it isn't going to improve their seat count very much. Uh, so that is another thing to watch. If they are able to regain 10, 15 points in, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, that might win them one or two extra seats. The question is whether they're going to have numbers that are improving in Quebec, in Ontario, and BC. The BC numbers in some polls look a little bit better for the Conservatives lately. Uh, so that is something to watch. The Conservatives were polling in third in a lot of polls in BC, so that would be pretty disastrous for them. The New Democrats, they're, they're looking pretty good in the early days, um, 21, 22% uh, in the polls. Most of them are showing them going up. So the NDP is starting this campaign with some momentum. That is very good news for Jagmeet Singh, who remains the most popular leader. What I found interesting, though, about the Abacus poll is that it showed a gain of two points for the New Democrats, but the net positive negative ratings for Jagmeet Singh actually decreased by a teeny amount, but he's not getting more popular. So it could just be that the NDP is starting to catch up with uh, Jagmeet Singh's own popularity. Something to watch again for the New Democrats, whether they're going to hit a ceiling, which has traditionally been in the 20% range, or if uh, this is momentum they can keep going. If they do manage to keep it going, uh, that'll definitely be uh, bad news for the Liberals. Uh, for the other uh, parties, the Bloc Québécois, still polling somewhere around that 30% mark, a little bit under it. Um, some of the polls have them up, some of them have them down. So they're still a big factor there, but we're not really seeing huge movement just yet. Uh, they are in a position to still win 25, 30 seats, um, and it all depends on where the Liberals are on that score. Um, but the Bloc Québécois still kind of holding steady. The Greens, they have been improving their numbers a bit. The last uh, set of polls have them at the 6 5%. A number uh, that is better than the three or four percent we are seeing in some of the polls going into the campaign. So that is good news for enemy Paul. But when you're looking at the Atlantic Canada results, the British Columbia results, most polls are still showing them uh, quite a bit lower than where they were in the last campaign when they had over 12 percent in those regions. They'll need to get back some of that, uh, some of that support if they're going to have a chance to hold uh, more than just Elizabeth May's seat on Vancouver Island. So that'll be something to watch. Also to watch. Where's the uh, People's Party going to end up? 4% is the threshold to be in the debates. And the polls that we've seen over the last week or so have them anywhere from 1% to 6%, and usually averaging somewhere around 3 or 4 That's going to be a big question. Who are they, uh, which pollsters is the debate commissioner going to look at? Because if you look at the IVR polls, so Ecos, Main Street, and also that forum poll, um, the People's Party was doing well enough to get into the debates. If you look at the online polls, Ipsos, Abacus, Leger, they were not doing well enough to get into the debates. Uh, so 
that's another thing to watch. But, you know, if you're looking about it overall, you know, I think the liberals are, are, are looking a little soft and uh, their numbers aren't going in the right direction. The conservatives are doing better. The Democrats have some momentum. The Greens are not imploding. Uh, so not the best start for Justin Trudeau and the liberals, but they're still the favorite. They still have the lead and the advantage. Okay, questions. I got a few on Twitter. I asked a little bit later uh, than I usually do, so I, I could only grab really the ones that came first. But there were some good ones. And the first one, I mean, this is the one that I really need to address uh, from Brandon Tozo, and I got it also. The couple other people asked about it. Why were the polls so off in Nova Scotia? Okay, let's talk a little bit about what happened in Nova Scotia. The progressive conservatives pulled off an upset. There's no other way to, to describe it than an upset. This They were an underdog party. The liberals were leading in the polls by 20 to 30 points. Before the campaign began, the last couple of polls we saw in the campaign showed that the PCs were having some momentum. They were closing that gap, but the Liberals still had leads. Uh, Main Street Research gave the Liberals a two-point lead. Forum Research gave the Liberals a three-point lead. Those were the only two polls we saw at the tail end of the campaign. And that's pretty key. We only saw those two polls at the very end. There was a poll by Leger, Main Street, and Narrative Research during the campaign. So all we had were those five polls. And... Only Main Street was in the field twice. They were the only ones who gave us an indication of where the momentum was going. That's not a lot of data to work with. The sample sizes in these polls tended to be pretty small. Uh, so when we're talking about the polls in Nova Scotia, you know, there's a lot of that, that S is doing a lot of work. There wasn't a lot of polls in Nova Scotia. Now, were they off? They were in a small way because the polls by Main Street and Forum had the Liberals at either 38 or 39%. It looks like the Liberals are going to end up somewhere around 37% of the vote. So not bad. That's pretty close, right? The PCs in both of those surveys were given 36% of the vote, and they're going to end up somewhere around 39%. Again, not a bad result. That's only off by two or three points. But those are some important points, right? It turned that narrow Liberal advantage into a just as narrow PC advantage, and it flipped everything from a liberal minority majority to a PC majority. If instead of that two to three point lead for the liberals, we were talking today about, you know, a five or six point lead for the liberals, uh, we wouldn't be really worrying too much about a polling miss, right? This is the key thing that the error in the polls, and again, only two polls, uh, was consequential. It made a big difference that the fact that the PCs beat their polls was enough to move them into a position uh, to form government. If they had been well behind, if they had been 10 points behind the Liberals like they were in some mid-campaign polls, if they'd closed that gap by five points, they still would have lost the election. So this is something that's key to remember. Now, why were they unable to get the PC vote uh, accurately? You know, there's a couple other factors here. Uh, conservative parties tend to be underrepresented in polls, not every time, but in a lot of cases, this could be something that's at play here. And it could be as simple as, as turnout issues that uh, the people who turned out to vote were more conservative than the people who were taking part in the polls. It is a bit of a puzzle because in Nova Scotia, the PCs aren't exactly a, a right-wing party, but they did win lots of seats in rural Nova Scotia and in, uh, in Cape Breton and the mainland. They weren't able to win those urban seats. So... It could be as simple as 
Turnout was higher in the rural areas, where the PCs had a lot of strength, and it was lower in the urban areas in Halifax and Sydney, where the Liberals had more strength. Um, So were the polls off here? Yes and no. Yes, in that no poll has given the PCs a lead since June 2019. uh, And the last polls of the campaign still had the Liberals ahead. But the error was relatively small. It's just that it was an important error. So that's something to take into account. And it's actually a really good reminder uh, for those of us who watch this, is that the polls will sometimes miss. And even when they miss by a little bit, it can make a big difference. And we have to have more of that caveat in our minds about how things could turn out unpredictably. Um, One of the factors here is that the Liberals were leading in the polls for so long. And they were leading in the polls going into the campaign, during the campaign, they were the incumbent government. Um, Everything gave you the indication that if the race was getting close, the Liberals probably still had advantages. But what was key here was not the ingrained Liberal advantage, but the momentum that the PC seemed to be building going into the last stage of the campaign. And uh, we could it could be as simple as a lot of the undecideds broke for the PCs, and because it was so close at the end, they didn't need to break by huge margin in order for Tim Houston to win that election. Uh, so that is probably what happened here. And I don't think that Nova Scotia should be seen as a miss of the polls, uh, but it, more in the context of an upset. This is just an upset. And I don't think that... Uh, the Liberals thought they were on track for losing government when the campaign began. I don't think they thought they were going to end up this slow when the votes were being counted. This is just what happens in elections and why we still have elections. But we should also remember that this is a provincial campaign with very few polls that were conducted. Often the polls are uh, small sample sizes. It's not going to be like the federal election where we're having campaigns across the country where regional differences will cancel each other out in some ways where the pollsters are putting in tons of resources into this, they're in the field every single day, and they don't want to miss. Missing in Nova Scotia doesn't look good for the pollsters that were there, but missing nationally, that is when you're going to be losing clients and business. So uh, that is something to take into account as well. Because they missed in Nova Scotia doesn't mean that we should assume they're going to miss by the same amount in the federal election. Um, But it is a reminder that if it gets close by election day, you do have to put a lot of those seats into toss-up categories and certainly more and uh, then, then I did in my seat ratings, and I'm going to admit that. There's a lot of seats that should have been safe for the Liberals. Uh, you know, there's some seats that were rural seats or small town seats like uh, around Lunenburg, where the Liberals won by big margins in the last campaign, and they lost them by big margins this time. Um, that is the kind of swing that is just very, very hard to predict and pick up in polls, right? Um So it was a fascinating election to watch, and kudos goes to Tim Houston for running a good campaign, pulling off an upset when a lot of people had written him off. Calum asks on Twitter, he put it this way, why do the NDP struggle so much to establish a permanent presence in a city that isn't Vancouver or Victoria? And that's simplifying a little bit, of course, you know, the NDP has now held seats in Edmonton for a while, um, and in Winnipeg, they've often had uh, some seats there. Uh, But it's true, in places like Toronto, in places like Ottawa, places like Um, Montreal, the NDP doesn't have much of a presence that has been there for a long, long time. I think the simple answer to this is that the party systems are just a little bit different in the East and the West. In the West, a lot of people vote NDP at the provincial level who don't vote NDP at the federal level. But that means that the NDP does get implanted in some areas. You know, the New Democrats in Vancouver, the New Democrats in BC, 
are seen differently in part because of the strength of the provincial party. And I think that gives them a much firmer place in BC than it would in Quebec or in New Brunswick or in Nova Scotia. And it's the same thing in Alberta and Manitoba and Saskatchewan, where the NDP does have strength in urban areas. It's in part because of that strength that is there because of the provincial parties. Uh, So I think that is one of the factors there. Whereas in Eastern Canada and Central Canada, the NDP, the provincial NDPs, aren't very strong. The Ontario NDP is the official opposition right now, but that is a bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of a, a surprise thing, right? Um, they're not usually the official opposition. I think that's the issue there, that in progressive areas, in urban centers like Toronto and Montreal, uh, and in smaller cities like Ottawa, you know, Halifax, places like that, the liberals aren't seen as a non-progressive option that for a lot of urban voters, they're willing to vote for the liberals in a way that maybe voters in Regina and Saskatoon and, and Vancouver and Winnipeg look at the party a bit differently. And the challenge for the NDP is that while they're able to win seats in Vancouver, in Victoria, in Winnipeg, and they can contest seats in Saskatoon and Regina and Edmonton, it's possible for them to be swept out of Toronto. It's possible that the only seat they'll ever win again in Montreal will be uh, Rosemont La Petite Patrie of Alexandre Boulleris. Um, until the NDP can establish some enduring footholds in urban centers in central and eastern Canada, um, you know, it's going to be hard for them to move forward because the path to an NDP government is a lot like the liberal path, right? It does need a lot of urban seats and, um, and the NDP needs to be able to win those outside of its traditional areas of strength. Lastly, this was just one question because I thought it was an interesting thought and experiment from writing of the day on Twitter. Uh, the question was, do you think opposition leaders will bring up the Greens attempted ousting of Annamie Paul during debates on the trail? Or is that too low a blow? You know, it, it, it is going to be uh, a tricky thing for the other leaders to bring up. It's always a different dynamic in a debate uh, when it's uh, a white male debating a, a person of color or a woman, some of the attacks that two white men might be inflicting on each other in a debate won't really go over very well when when the uh, when the people on the stages are different. So I think that is going to be something that is going to be interesting to see how Justin Trudeau is going to handle Annamie Paul, because he doesn't want to go to rough on her. Uh, the best thing for him is if he does not really pay much attention to her at all in either the debates. Uh, his his opponent in the debate is not going to be Annamie Paul. Aaron O'Toole, the same thing. He has nothing to gain from the Greens, and he will have everything to gain by building her up. So if anything, uh, Aaron O'Toole might be very complimentary to Annamie Paul uh, during the debate. I could see Jagmeet Singh doing that during the debate. Uh, There's no love lost between the Greens and the New Democrats, so uh, I would not be uh, surprised to see if Singh threw in a little bit of a dig. He sometimes did something like that during the debates uh, last time, so that would not shock me if Jagmeet Singh did it, but he still has to do it carefully. Uh, You know, those, a lot of their voters are friendly to each other's party, even if the, you know, the party or apparatuses aren't very uh, friendly with each other. And Yves-François Blanchet, I could also see him uh, doing that if um, if Annemie Paul decides to go after him. Um, especially since there were some Quebec Greens who were opposed to Annemie Paul because of her position on um, the, uh, you know, the, the new constitutional 
uh, move that the Quebec government was taking that Annemie Paul said she would vote against it if she had had a vote in the House of Commons, I can see Yves-François Blanchet saying something along the lines of, you know, even your own people within your party in Quebec don't support you on that. You know, that I could see Yves-François Blanchet doing. But um, I think for the uh, for Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole, um, I would be pretty shocked if they decided to go there. All right, and we're going to close with the uh, Every Election Project portion of the podcast. For the last couple of months, I've been taking a look at past federal and provincial elections as part of the Every Election Project. If you missed it, I, I wrote my first article a, a little while ago on the 1933 provincial election in Nova Scotia. Uh, please check it out. I, I enjoyed writing it and, and researching it. Uh, but over the course of this federal campaign, uh, I'm going to change it up a little bit in this segment and focus on the results of the last five federal elections, doing one a week, as a bit of a refresher of what the electoral landscape has looked like over the past 15 years and and where we got to where we are now. So this week, we'll start with the 2006 federal election. And this election was forced when uh, Paul Martin's liberals were defeated in a non-confidence motion in November 2005, kicking off a campaign that would run all the way until January 23rd, 2006. Martin had led the Liberals since the end of 2003 and won a minority government in the 2004 election. Stephen Harper was the leader of the Conservative Party and had been since early 2004. Jack Layton was also leading the NDP into his second campaign as leader, while Gilles Duceppe of the Bloc Québécois was in his fourth campaign. The election campaign started with the Liberals leading in the polls, but over the Christmas holidays, the Conservatives moved ahead, flirting with majority territory in mid-January before their numbers came down a little, and they ended up winning their first minority government, the one that made Stephen Harper Prime Minister. The result was, nationally, 36% support for the Conservatives. That was a gain of seven points since the 2004 election. The Conservatives won 124 seats. That was a gain of 25. The Liberals came second with 30% of the vote, down seven points. They won 103 seats. This was down 32 seats from the previous election. The Bloc Québécois was the third party. They had 51 seats. That was down three from the last election. The New Democrats with 17% support. They gained two points and they gained 11 seats, ending up with 29. There's also one independent that was elected and the Greens uh, were shut out, but they took 4% of the vote. The Conservatives won in Western Canada. Uh, They had the most votes in BC, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. The key shifts for the Conservatives in this campaign, in Ontario, they increased their vote from 2004 by four points. They ended up with 35% of the vote. They won 16 seats more. They got up to 40 seats. This was thanks to gains in Central and Eastern Ontario, places where the party still does pretty well, uh, Southwestern Ontario as well. They broke into some seats into the Burlington area, but where they did not break into in this campaign was the Greater Toronto area. This was still dominated by the Liberals. In Quebec, the Conservatives had a really big gain. They were up 16 points to 25% of the vote. They actually finished second there. Uh, That won them 10 seats. They went from 0 to 10, and these were primarily in the Quebec City area, and they hold most of those seats still today. Uh, There were some seats in the Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean that they don't hold anymore. The Liberals, they were able to win in Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland and Labrador, Nunavut, and Yukon. Uh, the key shifts for the Liberals in this campaign, they were down five points in Ontario, went down to 40%, but they still won most seats and the most votes, but they were still down 21 seats to just 54. In Quebec, they dropped big. They dropped 13 points to 21%. That placed them third behind the Conservatives and the Bloc. They're down eight seats uh, to just 13 
These were in the eastern townships, Montreal and the Udaway, where they lost some seats. They also were shut out of Alberta. They had two seats that they won in 2004. They were shut out in 2006. The New Democrats, they only came out ahead in the Northwest Territories. The key shifts for the NDP, they're up two points in British Columbia to 29%. They gained five seats that doubled their caucus from BC to 10. These were gains made uh, in Vancouver Island but also in the Lower Mainland and the BC interior. In Ontario, they're only at one point. They went up to 19%, but that won them five more seats. They increased to 12 seats. Uh, these gains came in Toronto and Hamilton. The NDP does not have any seats in Toronto now, but they are still holding on to those seats in Hamilton. And the Bloc Québécois, they dropped seven points to 42% in Quebec, and they dropped three seats. It was an interesting campaign for them because they actually lost a lot of seats to the Conservatives in the Quebec City area, but they gained seats from the Liberals, and the net loss was only three. Uh, but this was a, a campaign that really shifted the territories of each of the parties in Quebec, uh, putting the Conservatives on the map in that province, and they still hold those areas. So this was really key breakthrough for the Conservatives, starting their attempt to woo Quebec and at least have a foothold. This was the big shift, I would say, in this campaign, uh, that the Conservatives were able to break into Quebec and were starting to make their progress in Ontario that would eventually help them win a majority government in 2011. This would turn out to be the last campaign for Paul Martin, as well as Jim Harris of the Green Party. Harris would be replaced by Elizabeth May, and Paul Martin would be replaced by Stéphane Zion. Jack Layton, Jules Duceppe, and Stephen Harper would live to fight another day in 2008. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. As always, thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the writ.ca. If you haven't, you can head to the website to get full access to all of the content. Until next week, thanks for listening.